Welcome to PNCC Speak, the language of executives. Each podcast features local and regional executives sharing relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward-thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. I'm John Bernstein, Regional President of PNC Bank of New England, and I'm joined by my co-host, Carolyn Jones, publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you again. In this episode, we welcome Roger Crandall, Chairman, President, and CEO of Mass Mutual. Roger joined Mass Mutual back in 1988. He's worked his way up from an entry-level trainee to CEO. Now a captain of industry and leader in the business community, Roger Crandall. Roger, thank you so much for joining Carolyn and me for this episode of PNCC Speak, the language of executives. Happy to be here. We'd like to start out having you tell us a little bit about yourself because you know you first started out at Mass Mutual as a real estate investment trainee, which is an awesome story. So share with us a little bit about your unique career trajectory. Sure, and actually, I think the technical title was real estate investment analyst trainee. Ah, okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, look, I was born in Staten Island, uh, New York, and grew up in uh, New Jersey. So moved to Jersey when I was five from Staten Island. And uh, my dad actually was a salesman for Mass Mutual. He sold group products. Mass Mutual used to be in the group medical space, so he was a salesman uh, based out of New York City. So I always knew about the company. My dad was very determined that I was going to be employed. And I was desirous of being employed as well. So I actually used to go on uh, sales calls with him. I took a couple of certified employee benefit specialist exam tests, and I was on my way to being a a group salesman. And I got a couple of job offers to do that from uh, a pension sales job for Mass Mutual, actually in Wellesley, Massachusetts, job offers from other companies. And I was like, I'm not going to be a really good salesperson. My dad's great at it. I don't think I will be. So I decided to go to grad school instead. So I went down to Charlottesville, Virginia, the University of Virginia, to get a PhD in economics. Thought that sounds great. And just to say how different the world was, there was no internet. So I couldn't like check out the website about the program. I had never been to the campus. I had somebody give me a couple of phone numbers. So I found an apartment just by calling. I'd never seen the apartment. And the first time I arrived at UVA was when I drove in because I was starting class the next week. It was just a different world in 1987. It took me about a week to realize there was absolutely no way I was going to stay through a PhD program. I was really interested in investments and markets and the theoretical nature of economics uh, at that level. I loved it undergrad. So I started looking for a job. It was a great plan. I was going to go work on Wall Street. I was from the New York metro area. My girlfriend was working in the city at the time. And then there was a little problem in 87 uh, with the stock market in October. And there were just no jobs. So I was like, oh, I better, I better find something else. And that brought me back to Mass Mutual, and they gave me the opportunity to join a real estate investment training program. I figured, hey, I'll go to Springfield. I know where Springfield is. My family is a skier. I always drove through Springfield. I knew about Mass Mutual because of my dad. So I, I started July 5th, 1988. I figured I'd stay a year or two. Uh, and I've been there ever since, only place I've ever worked. So really a little unusual these days. I've done a lot of different things there. Ultimately, became the chief investment officer uh, before getting the opportunity to become uh, president and CEO uh, back in 2008. A great story. Yeah. Amazing to be with one company that long. Congrats on that success. Roger, what are some of the accomplishments that you're most proud of? And what are some of the pain points or challenges that you've encountered along the way? Yeah, I think there are a couple. First, it literally took me years to understand what a mutual company was. And our entire industry of life insurance used to be mutuals. And we were founded back in 1851. It's it's kind of amazing. 
31 people pulled $100,000. And the guy who started the company is a guy named Kyle Rice. He was actually an agent for Connecticut Mutual. And he said, hey, if Connecticut can have a mutual company, so can Massachusetts, right? And must have been a heck of a salesman because I think he was in his late 20s and he got $100,000 when that was pretty serious money. And the company started writing policies on friends and neighbors. And you can fast forward to today, the 100,000 has become almost 32 billion in surplus. And uh, we've got something like 5 million friends and neighbors <laughs> around the country. But this idea that we have one constituent class are policyholders. And we don't have to balance policyholders on the one hand and shareholders on the other is really powerful because our business is such a long-term business. You know, routinely our oldest policyholder is between 105 and 110 years old. She usually has had her policy somewhere between 80 and 90 years. Once in a while, our oldest policyholder is a man, but generally a woman. And everybody, whether they realize it or not, for the 170 years is left a little bit behind in the company to let it be a better company for the next generation. It's really kind of remarkable. So when I ultimately realized kind of how powerful being a mutual company was, when I got the opportunity to move from the investment side into the insurance company, I thought, you know, there had been a wave of demutualizations, you know, big companies, John Hancock here in, in Massachusetts, Equitable in New York. Mutual of New York, Prudential, uh, Metropolitan had demutualized. And, and frankly, a bunch of companies had failed. A mutual benefit. Phoenix didn't fail, but it came close. It's, it's now effectively owned by a, an offshore hedge fund. And I thought it was really, really, really important that we take advantage of being a mutual company. Uh, and that allowed us to kind of think about investing in a long-term business in, in a long-term way. And that really has meant growth. So 2005, my predecessor, Sue Reese, became the CEO. I became the chief investment officer. And at that time, you know, we were probably the 13th or 14th biggest seller of life insurance in the United States. You know, depending on the measure, we were three or four last year. So we grew dramatically. We've grown our top line sales at a 13, 14% CAGR now for 15 years. This is an industry that's been growing at a GDP kind of number, right? So, you know, compounding really is pretty magical. And, you know, we, we can't keep doing that. <laughs> the numbers get ridiculous. So I'm proud that we've done a good job for our policy. We're rated AA plus by Standard & Poor's. That's the same rating as the U.S. government. Patently absurd. We can't print money and sell our bonds to ourselves. It would be a pretty cool thing if we could. <laughs> uh, so I'm really pleased that just the core thing of making the company not just strong, but growing and strong, right? People want to be associated with a, a business that's growing. And we're, we're ultimately just protecting millions of more people and families. The numbers, you know, oh, 500 billion. I mean, th these are crazy numbers when you look at assets and revenues and things like that. What I do understand is when a family has someone die prematurely and they don't have to worry about finances as much. I, I do understand when someone's in a car accident and gets a disability policy. I do understand when someone's collecting a pension or a retirement benefit that we've helped kind of fund and it lets them retire the way they want to. And I do understand when someone's taking a claim for long-term care and they get to, to have dignity at the end of their life. Those things matter, right? So doing that thousands of times, I'm really, really proud of how Yes Mitchell's done that. More recently, the other thing I'm really proud of is if you kind of go back 10 or 12 years ago, Mass Mutual was not on the landscape at all about thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And Mass Mutual has become a real leader in DEI. And kind of the whole country has kind of woken up to how important that is. But I mean, just a little example, this is going to be the fifth year at Mass Mutual that part of our bonus for every employee is tied to diversity goals. You know, we put money on the table before people were putting money on the table. We sent our top executives to a multi-day unconscious bias seminar uh, called White Men and Allies. We did that five years ago. 
I'm now getting phone calls from CEOs saying, hey, tell me what you've done and how you've done it. So I'm really proud that I feel like we're creating an environment where people can bring their authentic selves to work at Mass Mutual. And I'm sure we're going to talk about what the heck does work mean in a COVID world, in a post-COVID world, or maybe not a I'm not sure COVID's ever going away. So, you know, that world. But those are a couple of things. Again, the, the company is growing. We talk a lot about doing business the right way, standing on the shoulders of the people who made good decisions before us. So let's provide the shoulders for the next generation to stand on kind of as well. And it's been working. So I'm really proud of those kind of basic things. On the challenge side, boy, interest rates are low. <laughs> <laughs> Our raw material, uh, if you will, is interest rates. It's tough being insured. No normal person thinks about life insurance. Let me kind of start about that. <laughs> We're a very long-term savings company that provides liquidity to people when they have catastrophic events. That's when someone passes away. But we take premiums. We invest them for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And these low returns in fixed income markets where we, we largely have to have our portfolio there, the way our regulatory capital works, we can't afford to own too many equity type investments as a percentage of our portfolio. It's tough when the 10 years at 1.3%. It's tough when short-term rates are zero. You work for a bank, so you, you know what I'm kind of talking about as well, but it makes it tougher out there. So certainly uh, that environment. And then the other thing that I think is a real challenge is the pace of technological change, not just in terms of you know, kind of how we run the company, but how consumers want to be addressed. I'm a Gen Xer. I just saw uh, something popped up on TikTok. Like, what's you know what, what's interesting about being a Gen Xer? And one of the things is we were the last generation that remembers the time without cell phones or without the internet, and the acceleration that's happened in social media, in mobile devices, in terms of how consumers expect to be able to interact with folks is a real challenge, right? We've got kind of focusing on increasing the pace of our decision-making, being willing to take some you know, risks. You know, you can't risk everything, but it's it's fine to fail, uh, learn from the failure and kind of move on. So kind of taking the best lessons from younger companies in terms of both culture and technology is important as well. On the pandemic, how specifically has the pandemic influenced how you lead and how you approach long-term planning for Mass Mutual? Yeah, I mean, John, it's, it's a great question. So the first thing we have operations in Asia. So we were maybe talking about the pandemic a little bit earlier. We may have made decisions about sending people home like three days to a week sooner than some other companies. And it turns out that telling people on Wednesday that this is going to be the last week feels really different than telling people on Friday, don't come in on Monday. So we focus really quickly on, you know, let's make sure our people are safe and we're going to be able to run the company remotely. Think of this as a really, really, really bad snowstorm, right? And at that time, I had an early call and, and I said, well, you know, someone said, when do you think we're going to go back to the office? I said, ah, it could be after July 4th. And people were aghast. Right? Now, little did I know that July 4th, 2020, <laughs> uh, 21 was even going to be, you know, was going to be a challenge. So, you know, once we realized we could run the company, we wanted to make sure we were taking care of our people. Because right? if we take care of our people, they're going to take care of their families and that's going to help them take care of their communities. Um, but it's also then going to enable them to take care of our customers. Right. So we we gave everybody two weeks of paid time off. We called it COVID time to use it for whatever people needed to use it for. Again, you had children trying to be homeschooled and when the schools shut down, I mean, it was just really, really kind of challenging. So I feel good about that. And I think our employees, you know, appreciated it. As we look at it now, we realize COVID is not, A, it's not going away like every other coronavirus that's encountered our, our species. It's going to be around forever hopefully at a much lower intensity with uh, the broad use of vaccines. So it'll be much more manageable. But it's also combined with all the technological changes. It really changes how people can work, 
And we want to attract and retain the best people. And we're going to have to be, frankly, just a lot more willing to work with people the way they want to work, uh, as opposed to telling people how it has to be. I think telling everyone you need to be in the office till five o'clock on Friday afternoons may be a thing of the past. I mean, there might be some segments of the of, of work that have to happen that way, but what we do lots are not. So I think that willingness and ability to be flexible puts a lot of pressure on managers, uh, especially frontline managers. Um, and we were down that path before, you know, on a cultural perspective, a couple of examples, we changed our dress code to two words, dress appropriately. So this is a podcast this isn't a video. So I just came from uh, a walk and I'm wearing uh, a gym shirt and shorts and that's appropriate for this, right? <laughs> Wouldn't be appropriate if I was meeting with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs> so dress appropriately. You know, and when I joined Mass Mutual, there was literally a small handbook about how you were supposed to dress. You could wear short sleeves between, you know, Memorial Day and Labor Day, literally that kind of stuff. So we had at one point at least eight, maybe nine levels of vice presidents. We had assistant vice presidents, we had second vice presidents, we had vice presidents, we had uh, junior vice president. I mean, it was unbelievable. And everyone came with, you got a cube that was eight by eight, and then you got a 10 by 10, and then you got a door, and you got a redecorating budget. And what we came to realize was people were focused on the title, not the job. So we blew that up and we did away with all those titles. So we do not have nine different levels of vice president now. We We have job titles that reflect what the job is. So that was a big cultural change. We have this unbelievable office in Springfield, Massachusetts. Anyone listening, and by the way, first I should say, anyone who's listening is a policyholder, thank you for being a policyholder uh, of the company. And, and if you're out in Springfield, you know, we've got this beautiful campus that was built in the early 1920s originally, and it's central casting what a big insurance company is supposed to look like. And I had this office that was something like at a night at the museum, Hall of Dinosaurs. You know, just a huge office with, with multiple conference rooms associated with it and everything else. And that office is gone. That's now a conference room. I don't have my own office. And I did away with everybody else's offices, right? So trying to kind of just change how people interact uh, in terms of we, what we want is people to bring their best authentic selves to work. We want them to put their best ideas on the table, have open dialogues about them, collaborate on decision-making. And then once we make a decision, let's go run the play. And that's more important than ever, I think, in a COVID world. Whether I've got an associate working for us in Romania or someone who's working remotely who uh, lives in Texas or someone who uh, is in the office in Springfield or Boston, you know, we need to get all of everybody's thinking and we need to be able to recruit and retain people from everywhere. So I think that agility is really, really, really important. And, um, and that willingness to try things, be willing to make mistakes, learn from those mistakes. Again, with the appropriate risk box around it, we're not, we're not a bet the company kind of company. I think that that's really important for how, uh, how the world's going to be going forward as we learn to live with COVID. Yeah, you know, Roger, it's fascinating that people don't always think of insurance companies per se as being so innovative and creative. And uh, it's really impressive what you've done at Mass Mutual. But let's talk a little bit about uh, another topic. You know, many people look to you as a mentor. What's your best advice to business leaders for your peers in the C-suite and for rising leaders as well? I think a couple of things come to mind. I mean, the first is I joke, we were a purpose-driven company before purpose-driven companies were a strategy in the Harvard Business Review. Right. So I think understanding what's the purpose, what is the with the purpose, you can kind of ground the, the organization and it becomes a true north about what you're trying to do. Right. So, you know, we help people secure their future and protect the ones they love. And that's that's what we do. So I think purpose is really important. And don't confuse purpose with business goals. 
you know, I've got business goals. We want to have X new policyholders this year and X Y in sales and Z in income, but that's not purpose, right? So I think purpose is really big. And then just building on what I said before, I think you really want a flexible and agile, you know, culture and structure. And to do that, it needs to be inclusive and diverse. And look, there's academic research that shows if you have more diverse inputs, you end up with better decisions. Groupthink can be really dangerous, but it's hard to manage that way. It puts kind of pressure on folks. And then I'm a huge fan also of when things are going crazy, like they were in the early days of COVID, you can fall back on your purpose. But that's also when you set the playbook, you know, how are you going to take advantage? If I look back at my career at Mass Mutual, the company has actually grown the most during the worst periods. We had set ourselves up to be able to take advantage of it. And I had an early mentor myself. Again, I was in investments. We were making investments and he kind of hammered into me that if you make an investment that's too big and it gets in trouble, the problem begins to control you, right? Where if you built the proper diversity in your portfolio, even if you have a problem, you can manage the problem. Right. So I think it's just really important to kind of keep that in mind. If you understand what your purpose is, if you've built an organization that's going to have the agility to kind of deal with things, um, when the proverbial, you know, what hits the fan, that's when opportunity really knocks. And you need to then be prepared to be bold and take advantage of it. You've worked with a lot of impressive leaders, but what's some of the best advice in addition to what you just mentioned, if you have another that you've been given? Anything come to mind? Yeah, look, I was really fortunate to have my uncle as a mentor. So my uncle's Bob Crandall. He was the CEO of American Airlines. Really kind of amazing. So I started in real estate. We had a complete collapse in the commercial real estate market in the late 80s, early 90s. Kind of perfect storm of overbuilding from uh, the expansion of the SNLs and the SNL crisis. Then we had the oil crisis that kind of took out all the oil areas. We had a change in the tax law, the 86 Tax Act that changed things. So it was, it was just a complete, complete debacle. And so I was doing workouts, which you learn a lot when someone doesn't pay you back in your lender. <laughs> but uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to make new investments. And I just finished my, my CFA, my Chartered Financial Analyst. Uh, so I moved over to the securities department. And the guy who followed airlines had just retired. And my boss said, here, you can follow airlines. At least we'll have one person to call, meaning my uncle. Unfortunately, they didn't know my uncle that well because the last thing he was going to do was talk to some 24-year-old junior analyst at an insurance company. <laughs> uh, but as my career went on, I did get to talk to him, uh, particularly about the interesting challenge of when you become a CEO, you no longer have one boss. Right? Your kind of whole career, you have a boss. And maybe you've got a couple and you know other people matter. But when you become a CEO, all of a sudden you have a board. And people say all the time, what does the board think? And I frequently say, I do not have anyone named board on my board. I've got 10 people who've all got views and thoughts. And part of my job as CEO is to kind of understand kind of all that, but be able to talk to him. And, and he really he really highlighted a couple of things. One is on execution, you really need to focus on excellence. Just day to day, kind of the Patriots do your job, right? If, if everybody does their job, you're going to be ahead of a large number of folks. The other thing on the investment side, guy named Bob Joyle, who I worked for many years, he kind of, again, highlighted the importance of really understanding the people you're doing business with. You know, you can run every spreadsheet in the world, you can do all the analysis in the world, but the old fashioned, pick up the phone, talk to someone that does business with the person you're getting into business with, who can give you kind of some insight. And I think life is too short unless you really have to, to do business with people who aren't going to approach business ethically. So I, th I think that was kind of a great advice and reminder as well. 
That's really interesting that your uncle was the former CEO of American Airlines. Fun fact I learned about you. <laughs> and we're all glad he finally talked to you some, Roger. We all are glad that. <laughs> For sure. Hey, Roger, what's your take on the health and outlook of our economy? What are the trends you're watching carefully? First, I am massively bullish on the United States. It's so easy to point to kind of all the problems. But if you peel back for a second, we've got personal freedoms. You can worship the way you want to worship. You can start a business tomorrow. If it fails, you can start a business the next day, right? We've got the ability to vote, right? We just had a first round of a mayoral election here in Boston, but uh, we have the ability to vote. Just the basic things in our country that frequently we may not remind ourselves of how great they are compared to the rest of the world. And then go back a little bit further. We're a big country with all the resources we need. We're energy independent for the first time. And that energy is going to shift over time to renewables, And but we're energy independent. We've got an unbelievably skilled workforce. It's expensive, but we've got a medical system that if you're really sick anywhere in the world, you probably want to come here to the United States. Probably want to come to Boston. <laughs> you're really smart anywhere in the world. Where do you want to go to school? You want to go to the United States. All right, so we've got the greatest universities. We've got the greatest research. We've got a river system that lets us move goods around easily. We've got oceans on both sides that let us import from the world, but also protect our borders you know, historically. And again, we've got this entrepreneurial culture that's the envy of the world as well. And despite what's happened in the last few years, we've been welcoming to immigrants for our entire history. Everyone here is an immigrant for all practical purposes. I'm hugely optimistic about the U.S. from those perspectives. And then um, we've got the demographics to support it. We're aging, but we're not aging the way Western Europe is. We're not aging the way uh, Japan and China are, frankly. So I think the U.S. is in a tremendous spot compared to the rest of the world. We got a lot of things to work out. We've got to work our way through COVID. We've got huge disparities in education. Uh, we've got huge disparities in economic outcome, depending on, on race and zip code. Our education system, as great as it is at the university level, it certainly could be better in the pre-K and the K through 12. I'm just, again, hugely optimistic about uh, how the US is, uh, is positioned. And I think we've got just a, a great future ahead of us. Are interest rates going to stay low? Are they going to go up? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's a lot of reasons uh, as the economy continues to recover uh, that we'll see rates go up a little bit. I think unemployment is going to keep going down. Uh, every company I talk to today, the question is, can we attract and retain people? Uh, people are raising wages. Uh, people are investing in training. I mean, you, you know, big companies too. I mean, you know, Amazon just announced uh, everyone at Amazon, uh, they'll pay for them uh, to go to college. I mean, you know, these are really kind of good things. So I'm optimistic there are going to be some ups and downs, but I'm very bullish on the U.S. Roger, you're based in Springfield, as you said, and you've had the benefit of getting to know communities and leaders in all corners of Massachusetts. Tell us a little bit, maybe, what do you love most about our state? So I think there are a couple of things that are really neat. The first is for a relatively small state, it's got a little bit of everything. You know, in a two-hour drive, you can be in a, a beautiful hill town in the Berkshires. Uh, it used to be a pain if you didn't have cell coverage, but a lot of times now I think it's great. You've got that. And, and then you've got the dynamism of a city like Boston. So I love this, just the, the geographic diversity, the, you know, the Cape, the islands, um, absolutely beautiful. I love just the actual diversity of the state. We've got a wide range of people. And to me, it's just fascinating wherever I am, just getting a chance to talk to folks and hearing their stories. You might talk to someone uh, who it turns out uh, is uh, relatively uh, in the big picture recent immigrant who married someone who came over on the Mayflower. 
their descendants. And then you might find someone who's literally been here for two years uh, because they immigrated just recently. So I love the diversity of the state. I love also how, again, I came here in 1988. And at the time, it was Taxachusetts. People were down on Massachusetts. And uh, there was no way we were going to be able to compete with Connecticut. You know, so Connecticut was this thriving state, had a great defense industry. It had a strong uh, business climate. Uh, and I fast forward to today and, and Massachusetts, again, is doing great, particularly what's happening in Massachusetts, this intersection of technology, particularly in the life sciences and education. You can't talk to anyone in the world who's involved in in biomedical type research who doesn't have a strategy for what they're going to be doing in Massachusetts. So I, I think it's it's just really awesome. We love the state as well, Roger, so it's, that's good. I'm so pleased to co-chair the Massachusetts Business Coalition for Early Childhood Education and Care alongside you. Why is child care an important issue for you and your company? Yeah, John, as we've both signed up and uh, we're drinking the Kool-Aid, if you will, but when you step back and look at it, if children get the right start from an educational perspective, the outcomes are just unbelievably good. For better or worse, I view the world through kind of a, a return on investment lens and a value of options kind of lens. Early childhood education has these massive paybacks. And you look at it from a financial perspective and it's unbelievable. But more importantly, what it does is it allows people to be the best versions of themselves to achieve their true potential. Again, as I said kind of earlier on, you know, sometimes you get lost or I find myself getting lost kind of in the numbers and I step back and realize, no, wait a second. The young person, the child who gets access to that kind of education, they then, then, they then go on to be as successful as they can be in grammar school. Your successor in grammar school, you get to go on and be as successful as you can in middle school. You're successful in middle school, you get to go be successful as you can in high school. If you want to then go to college, you can go to college. You're good at math, you could become an engineer and you could do something that could make the world a better place. You're good in science, you can go and develop an mRNA vaccine that might you know, save millions of lives. Maybe you're going to uh, help build the rocket. Uh, we, you know, we've got a private company that, as we speak right now, has three people orbiting the Earth. Maybe some of the things they're going to learn there, we're going to bring down here, and that's going to enable us to uh, manage climate change. So education, if you take the long view of, of humanity, education combined with science, combined with the ability to pass that knowledge along, to go back to the creation of writing and then the printing press and, and everything. That's why life expectancy is the highest it's ever been in our species history, right? That's why standard of living is actually the highest it's ever been <laughs> in human history globally too. But that all starts with people being able to, to be the best version of themselves they can be. And, and early childhood education is where it starts. So the numbers are compelling, but the humanity of it is even more compelling. So I'm very optimistic that we here in Massachusetts understand that. When I talk to politicians, they understand it. We're fortunate that we've got the financial resources as, as a state to do something about it. And, uh, and frankly, what's happening now with the federal government is going to help us a, a little bit with that as well. So as an employer, it allows us to attract and retain the best possible talent. And guess what? Some of that talent have young children and women. They want to make sure that their kids are going to be able to take care of. So from a mass mutual perspective, it makes sense. But I think from a broader societal perspective, it's a slam dunk. Such a critical and important topic. And uh, I will say that I think we are lucky as a community to have you and John both heading up that issue because uh, it, there's a lot to be done. So you've got a lot of work ahead of you, but really important work. So Roger, on August 19th, 2019, nearly 200 CEOs of America's largest companies adopted a new statement of purpose of a corporation. What can you tell us about that commitment and what are you trying to accomplish with it? 
Yeah. So, you know, we talked a little bit about as a mutual company, we think about things a little bit differently. So for us to sign a statement saying the purpose of a corporation goes beyond just profits, goes to caring about our employees, our customers and our communities was easy. In hindsight, as I look at it, it's fascinating in a certain sense. Why did it take so long for a broader array of companies to make that statement? Because when I talk to all kinds of companies, they all understand that it's not just about today, that it isn't just about you know maximizing profit. You, like, you need to be profitable. You can't grow over time and be successful if you're losing money, right? So you know that's that's kind of obvious when you think about it. But to me, this kind of connecting the dots between profitability for our policyholders, how our employees are doing, again, employees then support their families, which kind of support their communities. I think business has this this huge role to play, particularly as politically the country is as is quite divided uh, right now. As I said to my son, you know, Tom, you might not realize this, we want to do business with everybody. I don't only want to do business with people who think this way or that way. Uh, I want to hire and retain uh, the best people and I want to do business with everybody. So to me, what the Business Roundtable did when they, they brought this to the fore was a really powerful step forward. Roger, Mass Mutual recently launched the Catalyst Fund with a $50 million investment committing $25 million to Black-owned businesses in Massachusetts. Where did this idea come from and where is it headed? It really came from Mass Mutual employees. I talked about Mass Mutual really changing its approach to, to diversity, equity, inclusion. Part of that was setting up what we call business resource groups. And actually, it's interesting, be, before the murder of George Floyd and right before the COVID crisis hit and we sent everybody to work remotely, I met with a group of uh, Black and African-American leaders from Mass Mutual who were part of our business resource group. And they presented a, a series of ideas about what Mass Mutual could do to help the Black community, and particularly realizing that one of the key things that historically had happened was lack of access to capital and opportunities. The horrible legacy of slavery in our country led to a lot of things, but one of them was inability to have access to capital to start businesses, uh, to own real estate, to own homes, right? So, so we said, hey, let's get really down in the weeds as opposed to making big statements. Let's take a pool of money and let's look to support Black-owned businesses. And uh, so we ended up putting this together and at the same time also realizing there's an awful lot of uh, risk capital available for technology companies uh, in Massachusetts. But frankly, most of it's in eastern Massachusetts and it's mostly inside of 128. So we took another sleeve of this uh, to look kind of outside of greater Boston uh, for kind of investments. So we're looking to invest in early and mid-stage companies. This is you know, $250,000 to $2.5 million investments. Uh, it's not just capital. It's also then providing some resources uh, to the entrepreneurs and those businesses to help them figure out how they can grow. This really came from our own employees putting an idea in front of us. So Roger, this has been great and your insights and just the work that you do is it's really just so impressive and a good model for all of us. And we know big things lie ahead and we truly wish you continued success. So what's next for you? Well, I think a few things. I'm really, really, really fortunate to have been in this job for coming up on 12 years, but I don't feel like we're anywhere near where we could be. We have 100 million Americans that don't have the life insurance they need. In fact, the U.S. is the least insured developed market in the world. If I take a look at how much insurance Americans had as recently as 2000, um, there's something like 12 trillion or more of missing coverage. So I think we have a huge opportunity to bring uh, financial security to a much broader group of Americans. So I'm very excited to do that. So we've set a group of aspirations. Mass Mutual is going to be 175 years old in 2026. And, and one of those is to, is to serve 25 million people. You know, we're 
depending on how you count it, six and a half, seven million today. So how can we bring our products? And that's where new technology makes a big difference because being able to do things on mobile devices, being able to, uh, the investments we've made in building an entirely new technology platform, we call it Haven Technologies. It allows when you cut through it to have lower acquisition costs by using, uh, instead of having to take uh, get ugly for a minute, bodily fluids for underwriting. We can do it algorithmically for a lot of policies. Um, That's going to allow us to serve more people with affordable products. So I'm super excited about that. I can't wait to get our new building open in the seaport. We're going to be opening it uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Looking forward to having more of our folks back in the office. Um, I've joked that uh, the best grade you can get on Zoom in a complex class is a B. We've got a lot of complex classes we need to take. So uh, at least some days having more people together in person, I think we're going to get uh, we're going to get kind of better outcomes. So I'm, I'm excited about the opportunities for Mass Mutual and the opportunities for industry and the opportunities here in Massachusetts. Roger, we always close with a few rapid fire questions to help our listeners get to know our guests. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. When you're on a trip down memory lane with old friends, what are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, one of the things uh, my friends and I uh, used to do is build model rockets. And in theory, you needed a permit to launch them in New Jersey, but we did not let that stop us. Um, so we would have been shooting model rockets off in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> what is something people might be surprised to learn about you? Uh, that I was on the fencing team and I lettered in fencing in high school. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Where is, your, <laughs> where is your happy place in Massachusetts? Um, to me, one of the happiest places is actually uh, right down in the sea in the morning early, uh, seeing kind of the sun uh, come up over the harbor. That's a beautiful view. Right out my window, actually. It's yeah, I, I'm just going to say, it looks, it looks yeah. very, very familiar. <laughs> share something that reveals your sense of humor, Roger. What, what makes you laugh? Uh, what makes me laugh? So it hasn't come up yet, but but it's it's well known about me. I don't hide this. Uh, I was named after Roger Maris, and uh, I'm a diehard Yankee fan. And what makes me laugh is uh, my mom had never been to Boston, and I brought her to Boston. My son was going to Boston College. It was a beautiful fall weekend. We went to a football game. We walked the Freedom Trail. We did a duck tour. We mm-hmm. went to Derek Jeter's last game which was at Fenway and and both teams were out of it and the Red Sox fans were gracious and it was fabulous uh, and uh, and as we're leaving my mom says wow I get it I, I, I get why you like Boston I get why why your family's in Massachusetts and and she goes there's just one problem and she said she didn't use the word damn she said the damn Red Sox couple <laughs> 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 about my mom's sense of humor about baseball <laughs> I love it. That's love great. It. There's a bunch of grandmothers in Boston who say exactly the same thing about New York. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. And finally, uh, Roger, do you have a wish for the future? Yeah, I really wish our country could get this virus under control and attack it. You know, we're on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You know, Mass Mutual owned Oppenheimer Funds, and we, they had 650 people in, in the second tower in New York, and they all got out, thank God. But, you know, all these retrospectives and, you know, that feeling of how the country came together at 9-11, uh, I, my, my wish is we could come together around COVID and put it behind us and, and move forward as a country. I would really like that right now. That'd be really great to see. And that wraps up another episode. 
Roger, thank you so much. We really appreciate the time. It's been so much fun. Carol and John, thank you for having me and I really appreciate the opportunity to spend a little time with you today. Roger Crandall, Chairman, President, and CEO of Mass Mutual. I'm Carolyn Jones. And I'm John Bernstein. Thank you for downloading PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com forward slash Boston, search PNC. Come back soon and join us for another episode of PNC C-Speak. Until next time.